0: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanaeus Tauber, Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. As part of our ongoing education on the founders and the texts that inspired them, we convened a panel of historians to discuss Thomas Jefferson's life and legacy through the lens of his own education, what he read, and how those influences shaped the American idea. Andrew Browning is the author of Schools for Statesmen, The Divergent Educations of the Constitutional Framers. Nancy Eisenberg is the T. Harry Williams Professor of History at Louisiana State University and the co-author of Madison and Jefferson. Thomas Kidd is a research professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center moderates. The program was streamed live on October 28, 2022. Enjoy the show.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. Welcome, Andrew, Nancy, and Thomas. Uh, so looking forward to the conversation. And I want to begin as, as, as you teach our audience about Jefferson's intellectual influences with a letter that Jefferson wrote and would send to the sons of friends who are going to law school when he was older. He sent this to a young friend called Bernard Moore. He sent a version of this reading list to Robert Skipworth. Um, Friends can find it online at the Founders Archive. But in this letter, he sets out a syllabus for what Bernard Moore should read starting in the morning and going to the afternoon. And in particular, his, his recommendations about ethics and natural religion are really interesting about what Jefferson's own Influences were. He recommends Locke's Essay Concerning Human Understanding, Condorcet. He also uh, recommends Hutcheson's Introduction to Moral Philosophy and Lord Kames on Natural Religion from the Scottish Enlightenment, and then a bunch of classical sources: Cicero's On Duties, the most popular uh, Cicero book of the founding era, and Cicero's Tusculan Disputations, as well as the works of Seneca. Andrew, tell us about those books and what they can tell us about what you describe in your new book as as Jefferson's self-education?
2: Oh, thank you. And it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here this morning. I I think it would be useful to know what Jefferson's own contemporaries thought about the influences of uh, one's early reading and education. So I'd like to begin by quoting uh, William Livingston, who uh, was a of the Constitution, and served for a year in Congress along with Jefferson, although uh, because he was not an advocate of independence, he left and was replaced by the, uh, the delegation led by the Princeton president, John Witherspoon. But Livingston said this, he said, whatever principles are imbibed at a college will run through a man's future conduct and affect the society of which he's a member in proportion to his sphere of activity. Especially if it is considered that even after we arrive at years of maturity, instead of entering upon the difficult and disagreeable work of examining the principles we formerly entertained, we rather exhort ourselves in searching for arguments to maintain and support them. And I think that that probably is not only a pretty good description of Jefferson's own habit but a view that a lot of people in Jefferson's time would have uh, would have agreed to and accepted. So when Jefferson is, is writing to uh, oh, people like Moore and also Thomas Van Randolph and uh, William Munford, he wrote this similar letter three times in his life to prospective law students. I think he is he's thinking in terms of not only preparing for a career, but preparing for life. The letter to Skipworth is a little different because uh, Skipworth was not headed for a legal education. And uh, I think it's interesting that uh, in his case and only his case, Jefferson recommends translations into English of the the classical authors, uh, which Jefferson told uh, Priestley later on uh, was one of the great pleasures uh, and one that he thanked his early teachers for being able to read them uh, in the original Latin and Greek. you pointed out, you, you certainly revealed to us when you uh, described these uh, these authors, that Jefferson's influences do seem to fall into four pretty distinct categories. Uh, and the classical influences, Cicero above all, uh, were essentially the education of any uh, American or British uh, gentleman in the 18th century. Uh, Jefferson probably spent the first six years or so of his education learning to read and write Latin using Cicero and, and a few other authors as his model. And, and Cicero stuck with him. He never leaves Cicero's name off uh, his, his lists. When he was accused by Richard Henry Lee of having plagiarized the declaration from Locke's Second Treatise on Government, uh, his defense was that he actually was simply using the the fundamental works that were in the air at the time And then he says those were Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, and Sidney, or at least those four he mentions, which is funny because he never mentions Aristotle in any other circumstance. And and, uh, one thing we do know about his education at uh, at William and Mary was that William and Mary, conservative as as the school was, directed the uh, professor's to teach the philosophy of writers such as Locke and Newton rather than Aristotle, who had been too long in the schools. So the classical influence, the uh, Scottish influence, and I think this probably comes up mostly in the readings that George Wythe directed him to when he was studying law with Wythe, uh, Hume, Hutcheson, Robertson's histories, and Lord Kames above all, one of his his, uh, favorite authors, uh, Henry Hume, Lord Kames. Uh, then there are the, the British, um, the Commonwealth men, as they're called, the uh, the writers and, and the politicians who uh, supported the uh, overthrow of the Stuarts and Locke and Sidney, who he tends to mention in tandem, and Bolingbroke uh, were all in these, these letters of recommendation to students and all favored uh, authors of his. And finally, the French authors uh, who show up later in his career, I don't think until he'd really been to Paris. Uh, did these authors become really influential? People like Condorcet, uh, although uh, Montesquieu was probably a, an early influence there, too. So those four categories, those authors that uh, I think Jefferson thought young men setting out in life uh, needed to know if they were going to be effective public citizens.
1: Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction to Jefferson's thoughts for that really helpful a breaking down of the four influences, the classical, Scottish, British Commonwealth, and French, and uh, really looking forward to exploring similarities and differences among those influences. In your wonderful book on Jefferson's spiritual life, Thomas Kidd, you tease out the competing tugs of the classical and Enlightenment influences. You, you ascribe the famous heart and head letter to the battle in Jefferson between Epicureanism and, and Christianity. Um, your, your book is so rich. Give our audience a sense of how the influences we put on the table, the, the classical uh, Scottish Enlightenment, British, and French influences, played out in Jefferson's uh, moral and spiritual philosophy.
3: Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think the introduction that we've already had speaks to the vast array of intellectual influences that, that Jefferson. Has and you know Jefferson has become increasingly controversial in American culture these days, but it, it doesn't seem like anybody would deny the fact that he read an awful, an awful lot of sources and, and considered that a proper gentleman should devote himself to the life of the mind this way and 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 to continue to pursue reading for enlightenment and edification throughout your uh, adult life. And so we've seen already that, that he he's just massively devoted to this continuing program of, of reading that also uh, leads him to spend an enormous money, amount of money on books, <laughs> which is uh, a vice I, I tend to approve of. But uh, he does have the Epicurean uh, influence, and, and he often uh, will discuss even in late into life about the Epicurean uh, influence on his philosophy. And, and to him, Epicureanism we we tend to think of Epicureanism as as the pursuit of just pleasure for for its own good, but for Jefferson, and in the classical Epicurean tradition, that's more about pursuing tranquility, um, and and sort of peace that often is attached to private living, at a place like Monticello, um, and and so that that was a really important value to him. But he also has uh, deep Christian influences. He he is. Uh, sort of heterodox in his theology and in terms of especially as a young man he talks about in a letter to peter carr his nephew uh, around the same time as the letter that that you reference that we should think about uh, the bible as as sort of a piece of classical literature and that if tacitus or livy had had talked about miracles happening that, that you, you probably wouldn't take it at face value. And, and, and similarly, we should read the Bible uh, that way. But he's also ensconced in this, in this traditional Anglican culture that he grows up in. And he's very active in, in reading uh, the New Testament in, in Greek uh, throughout his adult life, apparently. And, and he also reads uh, the Septuagint, the ancient uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, for his own personal edification and enlightenment through his adult life. Uh, he does not know Hebrew, which he and John Adams talk about that sometimes, about whether a properly educated person should know Hebrew or not. But, but Jefferson actually says he he thinks you can hear the voice of the divine better in the Septuagint, in the Greek, than you can in the Hebrew, which I'm not sure how Jefferson would know, since he, he can't read the Hebrew, but... But uh, anyway, you you can see that those just add to this symphony of all these different sources. It's my sense that part of Jefferson's kind of moral dissonance is that he never really settles on exactly which one of these traditions is going to be the sort of ethical determinant, as it it were, in his life. And, And I think that that at least partly accounts for some of the dissonance, if not chaos, in his ethical, personal living.
1: Fascinating! What a beautiful way to put it—the symphony of different sources. And that claim that his ethical chaos is reflected in his in his personal living is made powerfully in the book. You you so powerfully suggest that his devotion to the Bible is is stronger than is sometimes thought. He believes, as you say, in providentialism and an afterlife. But despite his Unitarianism, does not settle on a, a firm spiritual philosophy. And with you argue catastrophic ethical consequences. Nancy Eisenberg, what was the consequence of the sources we've been discussing on Jefferson's famous statement in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, including those to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness?
4: Well, first I'd like to say we have to remember that Jefferson owned a lot of books. Uh, 7,000 that he would sell to the Library of Congress in 1815, 1816. And then he bought a new library. So I very much see him as a man, a work in progress. Um, His ideas really do change over the time as he reads, as he explores new areas. But yes, I think I agree with Andrew Browning that he can be stubborn (laughs) and often wants to defend his ideas. Uh, He's not always generous to people who disagree with him. But when we get to the Declaration of Independence, I think one of the things we also have to realize about Jefferson, and that's why people who've looked at his commonplace book, we have to often remember how did he acquire his knowledge? And a commonplace book is about collecting uh, excerpts, verses. And there's an interesting way that I think we, could th- we need to understand Jefferson is that in many ways, he has a, poetic, a poet's sensibility. Um, He listened to the sound of words. He cared about that. That's why his letters are these crafted masterpieces. It's not like today where people get on the internet and just type. (laughs) Uh, He was very conscious of words, their sounds, their order, um, and and capturing that rhetorical and poetic impact. Um, And when we get to the Declaration of Independence, um, I strongly suggest that everyone read Jefferson's original rough draft, because there you really see the importance of his words. And I'm gonna just read a few lines, such as, these facts have given the last stab of agonizing affection. Manly spirit bids us to renounce forever these unfeeling brethren. It becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the bands which have connected them to another. He talked about the patient sufferance of the colonies. And here's the real incredibly powerful line. We must endeavor to forget our former love. Now, what is Mm. he talking about here? Well, he's actually treating the Declaration of Independence as a divorce decree. And we know this because just a few years earlier, in 1772, when he was a practicing attorney, he'd made a list of the pros and cons of divorce. And here we see the influence of David Hume. What does he take from David Hume? Very key argument. He said, it was cruel to continue by violence, a union made at first by mutual love, but now dissolved by hatred. That's essentially what he's saying when he's talking and justifying the right of rebellion the right to sever that tie. In addition to Hume, he also refers to Montesquieu. And what's crucial, this is why, you know, scholars have pondered for many years, why is it that he changed John Locke's famous triad of life, liberty, and property to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Well, in his list of pros and cons, he basically said happiness is the reason marriage existed at all. So, What I'm trying to suggest is that Jefferson's way of thinking and the way in which he uses language and every word that he puts on the page, he's very aware of its impact. And the Declaration, what he was doing was extremely important. He was rejecting the older model, which assumed that Great Britain or the king was a father and the colonists Were children, this was a common metaphor, the family metaphor, he's changing the family metaphor to create it into a more equal relationship, one based on consent. And I think if you pay attention to his words and the richness of his words, and we realize that Jefferson takes and borrows from different elements, whether it's something not just directly from David Hume, but David Hume through the filter, (laughs) of how he was applying it to thinking about divorce. And it's the one area of Jefferson's expertise in the law. People went to him to talk to him about questions relating to marriage and divorce because he was not, you know, the law was not his major focus. So I think that borrowing and that way of thinking about his language is also essential for understanding Jefferson.
1: Wonderful. Such a rich intervention about Jefferson's poetic influences, the importance of his commonplace book and that that really illuminating parsing of his writings about divorce to understand his idea about the pursuit of happiness. I would love to take a round, because I know we'll all learn so much from you, to ask uh, you, Andrew Browning, to delve in about the relation between all of the intellectual influences we've been discussing on the Declaration. Uh, the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, comes not from John Locke's second treatise, which talks about life, liberty, and property, but from John Locke's essay concerning human understanding, where Locke says that a constant determination to a pursuit of happiness is no abridgment of liberty. And we've put on the table a, a bunch of different influences that, Andrew Browning you, you discuss in your book so well, from the uh, Scottish Enlightenment folks to the to the English Whigs to the classical people. Jefferson read all of them. He recorded them in his commonplace book. And the other founders read them too, the other people at, at the Continental Congress. So Andrew Browning, how would you discuss these competing intellectual influences we've been describing on Jefferson and, and how they're reflected in the Declaration?
2: Well, they, they are, in a sense, competing. I mean, Locke and Hume would have disagreed on far more things than they agreed on. Uh, but it, I think it's interesting that that Jefferson was always looking for different kinds of support for the principles that he had already absorbed. Thomas Kidd talks about the the Epicureanism uh, that that is such a large element of Jefferson's value system. I think that's the pursuit of happiness, what he's talking about, not just the idea that we can pursue uh, what the French called le bonheur. Uh, I think a lot of his... uh, Later, writing about happiness uh, is influenced by French thinkers, but the notion that the pursuit of happiness is what Jefferson was always after, and that's the the Epicureanism uh, I think that, uh, that we heard about earlier. Locke, to many modern readers, uh, means the the two treatises on government, but in in Jefferson's time, the the Essay on Human Understanding was a far more influential, far better known document. I think that's one of the sources of the uh, the idea that all men are created equal, is Locke's argument that the, we are all born as a, a tabula rasa, and the only thing that's going to distinguish the great from the lesser great is is going to be the influences that mold their lives, the, the writing on that tabula rasa. With Jefferson and his different authors that he read, he's not really systematic about trying to... to uh, make sure that all of his his uses of these authors are consistent. But he he chooses those elements of them that really strike a chord with him. Uh, Nancy Eisenberg talks about his belief in the the right of revolution uh, being associated with uh, his arguments uh, about the nature of divorce as a lawyer. Uh, And I think he he found those connections and and they made sense to him. He, He seized on them because they reinforced what he already wanted to think. Uh, I noticed in his, um, his commonplace book, his legal commonplace book, the one that he took uh, notes in when he was studying law, he writes a great deal, uh, records a great deal of the history of the Anglo-Saxons. And uh, it's interesting that when he was uh, planning the curriculum for the University of Virginia, his own ideal college. Uh, he didn't really want to, to include uh, Hebrew as a required language, but he he really wanted to have Anglo-Saxon taught by the, uh, the university. And I think the reason there is that he was convinced that the career of the Anglo-Saxon tribes in leaving Germany and coming to England, and therefore giving up their identity as Germans, was the... Uh, the model of what the American colonists had done in leaving England, giving up their identity as Englishmen, uh, and becoming a new people. So you know, that's very different from the idea that he's talking about a divorce. But both of those lines of thinking lead him to the same uh, conviction, and that is that the American people uh, do have a right. Uh, to separate from England, uh, if he finds that in in uh, Francis Hutcheson and his arguments for the right for rebellion, that's one more reinforcement. So he, he goes to many different sources, but it's it's not that he's trying to find what those sources have to say. I think he's he's gathering together, synthesizing uh, the different elements of them that all uh, focus on what he believes and what he wants people to believe.
1: That idea of him as an eclectic thinker who synthesizes the common elements of these philosophers is so powerful and true. And I want to ask you about the pursuit of happiness. And in particular, an, an author who appears a lot in, in the commonplace, in his literary commonplace book, is Cicero. And I was so struck yes. when Jefferson's father died. Jefferson copied passages from Cicero's Tusculan Disputations to console himself. And when he was written to by law students and later in life and asked to define the pursuit of happiness, he would often uh, give an example from Cicero as well. So let me ask you, Thomas Kidd, what was the influence of Cicero on his vision of the pursuit of happiness? And all of the thinkers on that letter that he recommended to Bernard Moore Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Keynes, all of them view the pursuit of happiness as obtained by the pursuit of virtue, of being good rather than feeling good. Tell us about how they influenced Jefferson's vision of the pursuit of happiness.
3: Well, I think that there's multiple impulses there, even within the classical tradition. I mean, part of uh, what what he's drawing on there is the Republican ideal, small R Republican ideal of the you know, the independent farmer. Um, and the you know the a life of of tranquility where you're you know you're left alone to to enjoy you know, books and and family and wine and um and 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 that I mean that's a powerful ideal within that kind of Roman Republican tradition that, that he's drawing on and I th- I think that that's again part of what he's trying to manifest at Monticello and then when Monticello gets too busy he he builds another mansion even farther away at Poplar Forest. And so there is that ideal of the pursuit of happiness as private tranquility. But as you suggested, there's also within the Republican and Christian traditions, the idea that there is no happiness through just the pursuit of of self-interest and pleasure, but that virtue is a path to happiness, if not the path to happiness. And I think that Jefferson is ambivalent about this. I mean, he he certainly knows that tradition of, uh, of Republican and Christian virtue, but he doesn't ever seem to really embrace the idea philosophically that God has designed a way for us to live that will lead to happiness. Um, and I think he tends to see these matters in a more individualistic sort of light, that um, you know, it would be too strong to say, sort of do your own thing. But but there, I mean, I, I think he does idealize that being left alone in your private world to sort of make that world what you want to. Um, and of course, one of the great problems with that that we struggle with now is that that whole private world that he's envisioning is deeply dependent on the subservience of other people to allow you to pursue happiness, that that, that sort of deeply depends on the idea that other people are not free to pursue their happiness and that that and that's just a dilemma that I think Jefferson never really uh, sorted out and so this is again where you can see is the you know christian mandate of sort of sacrificial love for your neighbor is that the controlling virtue or or, or is it the tranquility and pleasure of of home and family life and and consuming good wine and those sorts of things I just don't think he ever completely sorts it out.
1: So interesting. Nancy Eisenberg, you talked about the roots of Jefferson's idea of the pursuit of happiness and divorce law. Tell us how you think he understood the idea of the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Kidd just identified these competing notions, the the Christian and stoic or Republican idea of of virtue as as caring for others and and self-sacrifice versus the Epicurean focus on tranquility. But it's striking that all of the sources on Jefferson's reading list, the Scottish Enlightenment sources, as well as the classical ones, contain the phrase, the pursuit of happiness. I was blown away when I uh, read them and and found that the phrase actually appears. So obviously, these different traditions use the phrase pursuit of happiness, but understood it in different ways. How would you describe the competing visions of the pursuit of happiness, and how do you think Jefferson understood it?
4: Yeah, I think we have to remember, and, and this is where the historian comes into play, that clearly there's plenty of evidence to show that he was interested in Epicureanism, but that's premised on the idea and many who saw Jefferson, many who visited him at Monticello, remarked that he's very much carries himself as an aristocrat. Uh, Because to have those pleasures, to have wine, uh, and as we know he went deeply into debt, to have a taste, the whole idea of the aesthetics of taste, uh, was rooted in his, the way in which he constructed an aristocratic identity. And this was quite common in Virginia. Most Virginians uh, like to dress down. I made a joke in my class the other day. It's like Google execs. You know, they were wearing blue oh. jeans. And Jefferson would kind of later adopt that when he's president. You know, he wouldn't, after his inauguration, he returned to the White House on his horse. He wouldn't go in a fancy carriage. Uh, John Marshall also did not wear expensive clothing. uh, And Jefferson wore very expensive clothing when he's in France. (laughs) It's like Franklin when he changes his wig, uh, when he leaves England and then goes to France. There is a way in which Jefferson is conflicted, but he very much throughout his life, when he's constructing his tranquil, permanent felicity at Monticello, uh, it's not only totally dependent on his aristocratic privileges, but it's also very much, as the late Jan Lewis wrote about, it's about his family and the way in which even John Locke, John Locke did not embrace equality for everyone. (laughs) The two treatises uh, is premised on the idea that the family, the private sphere, uh, is of a different order. Um, And he did not accept the idea that women were equal. And I think we have to see that in Jefferson as well. In the same way, he is more than willing, as the master of Monticello, to accept and be dependent on the work of slaves. And, you know, he drew a distinction. He drew a distinction between the cultivator, which was a higher, more noble, and this he draws on the long tradition of husbandry from English sources, uh, versus the slave who never reaches that status. Uh, And in a sense is sort of seen more as not only the, you know, building his freedom on the unfreedom of others, which was widely recognized and discussed in the 18th century by Franklin and many others, but the idea that we have to accept that Jefferson still retained the idea that people are born to certain stations. Um, so this is what makes him so complicated. The pursuit of happiness has its limits because some people are simply not going to have the same luxuries and privileges as a Southern white male planter. It's just not going to happen, and Jefferson in no way imagined that he wanted it to happen. So we have to kind of put him in the context of the way he actually lived, as well as distinguishing that from the sources that he read and, and I, I definitely agree with Browning that he selectively chooses what he wants to read, when he wants to read it. But the domestic sphere and the way in which he imagined happiness is intimately tied to the way he thought of family, um, his first marriage, the way in which the kingdom on the mountain, very much the, the manor estate, is very much the center I mean, he's constantly, when he's in the White House, he's constantly complaining to Madison, I want to return to Virginia. I want to return to Monticello. So he creates it as this ideal, this idyllic place, this Eden. So happiness is, is deeply rooted in the way he thinks of family, the way he thinks of the world that he is constructing. Um, as the, the architectural historians have gone into great detail about Monticello, creating. And if you go to Monticello, you'll realize that His bedroom and Jefferson's room is the center of the universe at Monticello, and others are the satellites.
1: You're so right that going physically to Monticello and and standing in that room, feeling how he constructed the entire palace as a sort of uh, Eden for his own uh, utopian visions is, is so true. Well, we have several questions about how Jefferson reconciled his writings in public life with his private life, as Fred Dugan puts it, we have a question about the degree to which uh, Stephen Laparose asks, in what sense might we today, including those perhaps with a Christian biblical worldview, understand Jefferson's created equal? So Andrew Browning, to what degree did Jefferson's philosophical readings and commitments influence or not his complicated, arguably hypocritical views about slavery?
2: I think To understand Jefferson and uh, to try to find a coherent answer to that question, you have to see him as a theorist, an idealist. Nancy Eisenberg has has done a a wonderful job in her book about Jefferson and Madison and, and Looking at the uh, the relationship between the two of them and, and Madison in many ways was the one who was trying to make Jefferson face reality. And Jefferson was always heading off into a, a theoretical ideal that Madison had to kind of grit his teeth. He knew that was not going to work. but uh, But Jefferson was always trying to work out his ideal. And at Monticello, he never finished Monticello. Uh, he, he, he moved his, his wife in there and they lived essentially in a tent while he was, was building and rebuilding Monticello. Jefferson was never, he never achieved his perfection. He never achieved, and you can't achieve perfection. He understood it. The pursuit of happiness is the, the thing that all people are entitled to. The achievement of happiness is probably impossible for anybody and certainly was for, for Jefferson. So when you think of Jefferson, you know, spending money on wine, but winding up in debt to the point that his estate could not carry out his, uh, his goal of, of manumitting his slaves because they were assets that had to be balanced off against the liabilities that his estate had and in the, uh, the debts that he had run up, Jefferson could put on his blinders. And if he was pursuing an ideal, whether it was the, the perfect place to, to live or the perfect style of eating dinner or uh, the ideal political structure, uh, sometimes the practicalities got brushed aside. And, and sometimes those practicalities were very important practicalities like people's lives and freedom. So I, I think if we see Jefferson as a, a not very practical uh, but deeply committed idealist, we we understand him a little bit better. And I think that was what, what Madison had to live with in that, that partnership.
1: Very well put. Someone who put, Jefferson put on his blinders and we see him as a not very practical idealist. Seems like a, a powerful way of capturing him. Uh, Thomas Kidd, in your book, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh, you powerfully point out these inconsistencies between his public theoretical commitments and his private life ranging from the great debt he went into to his uh, hitting on the wife of a friend, uh, John Walker, to his relationship with Sally Hemings. uh, Relationship is not the right word to his uh, abuse of of Sally Hemings, who he enslaved. Um, Tell us about that that clash, which you explore so powerfully in your book, and, and how did Jefferson reconcile it in his own mind?
3: Right. I mean, I don't think he did reconcile a lot of these things. I mean, we, we've we talked about the debt problem, and that is, in a way, the biggest point that Jefferson struggled with himself is that he uh, was constantly touting the virtue of frugality and economic independence. And he was the exact opposite of that in his personal life. And, and I think he was somewhat humiliated by it. But uh, as, as Nancy Eisenberg said, I mean, you, I, th- I think when, when you do have to understand him as an aristocrat, and, and for me, the, the probably the controlling uh, ethical standard for him was the mandates of living as a Virginia gentleman. And so, so he, he just simply could not stand the idea that he would not present himself in a genteel way to guests, for instance he could not stand the idea that when a gentleman friend or relative came to him for a loan that he wouldn't sign the loan. And and that that was really, he called it the coup de grace, as then in the late 18-teens, he co-signed a massive loan for one of his relatives and political allies, and, and then the panic of 1819 hit, and and this guy died. So uh, Jefferson was totally sunk at that point. And you just think he's been He's been moaning about how bad his finances are for years and years. And then he goes off and does this utterly foolish thing. And you just think, how, how could this possibly be? I mean, we, we spend more time rightly on on the hypocrisy over slavery. But I think on that issue, that Jefferson had at least a way that he explained the contradiction to himself, which was that I will be ready to support gradual emancipation when the when there's political will for it in in Virginia, uh, or in, in in the nation, his signing of the ban on future slave imports in 1807 and 08 is is probably an example of that that there was something to that. But he professed in notes on the state of Virginia, and and other places early on in his political career that slavery was immoral and that it was bad for Slaves and it was bad for the owners and and all this, but certainly as Andrew Browning said, his his economic situation uh, and and after eighteen oh six it becomes more legally difficult to do anything about uh, manumission too. Um, but but it's especially his economic situation, financial situation, that's never going to allow him personally to do anything uh, other than let some of his uh, almost certainly children with Sally Hemings to run away, and then he frees a couple more of them in his will, and some uh, of his slaves that he's particularly close to, he lets go, but a hundred plus more of his slaves have to be auctioned off because the creditors are at the door.
1: Such a powerful explanation ultimately for his hypocrisy, as you say, that his incredible indebtedness didn't allow him to live his ideals, and and therefore he was uh, hypocritical at the end of his life. Nancy Eisenberg, Jefferson did lament avarice, which was a classical sin, both as the reason that other enslavers refused to support the end of slavery. He he criticized South Carolina and Georgia for refusing to ban the international slave trade because of their avarice and was quick to detect avarice in others, but not in himself. To what degree does that explain much of his Hypocrisy and and how self-aware was he of his own greed and avarice?
4: Well, you know, Jefferson at times imagined himself as a moralist. I mean, when he decides to cut and paste the Gospels (laughs) and tell the importance of what Jesus can teach you from the Bible and eliminates the things that he thinks are either superstition or distractions, um, it's very much almost like, you know, Aesop's fables. I mean, he is taking the key elements, the key virtues that Jesus's teachings can offer. And one of them, and Jefferson himself does not adhere to them, like, you know, humility, um, tolerance, generosity. These themes are for him uh, qualities, again, that were associated with his version of gentility. But there are also, I think, we have to realize that as we said, I think it was uh, Andrew was, Browning was saying or talking about him being an idealist or that you're pursuing a certain moral sensibility, which was very important to him and how you carried himself. But Jefferson is also very much a man of the 18th century. So the highest ideal was equilibrium. Uh, was to not to go to extremes. So he's constantly railing against the Federalists and sees them as effeminate and overly emotional. Um, And this returns us to another important way Jefferson looked at the world. And I think he's very much grounded in a kind of materialism, uh, the human body. Um, And this is where Jefferson is a scientist and he's borrowing from the 18th century science. Um, And he also believes very much in environmentalism that people are creatures of the land, creatures of the soil. And he believes that not only if we think about Locke and the importance of human experience and and the collection of knowledge over a lifetime, how that makes the human. um, Jefferson also believes um, in his idealistic way that the body plays a part in defining who you are as a thinker. Um, John Locke advised that elite gentlemen uh, should not spend all their days sitting in a chair or reading. <laughs> That they needed to get out and get some exercise. Um, and Jefferson subscribed to these rules of health. I mean, getting up every day and bathing his feet and making sure he went out for a horseback ride uh, on his horse to get his exercise because that's the way gentlemen got their exercise. Um, so there's there's an interesting thing. I mean, even if we think about the head and the heart, the body is there too. <laughs> uh, that That is, Jefferson read all the latest medical theories. Those theories influenced the way he looks at how the body functions, and that's going to affect your moral behavior. Those two things are not disconnected. I mean, and, and I think that's another way for us to recover the real Jefferson, uh, the way in which he even was influenced by a Swiss thinker, Tissot, about sexuality, sexual behavior. Um, so he thought about, and that's something we often never talk about with the founders. Um, again, I made a joke to my students the other day about we If you read some old studies, you'll see that the founders never had sex. Well, of course they did. They were human beings, they did things. Um, And the question of Sally Hemings, we have to put this in the context that he certainly was not the only Southern planter who had a relationship with a slave. And it's even more complicated because Sally Hemings is a relative. She is the half sister of his wife. And this is the other dark side of Jefferson that he deeply adopted this idea of understanding race and understanding human capabilities through the idea of pedigree and inheritance. And and many times he compares human pedigree to the way he was raising sheep in a very famous letter. And he also uh, very much in that way in his notes on the state of Virginia, where he's kind of arguing against the French thinker Buffon and arguing that The the United States is not one big degenerate (laughs) swamp uh, where everyone, animals are shrinking and the human potential is being stifled. Um, But he still accepted the idea that human behavior can follow the path of regeneracy or degeneracy and pedigree and inheritance, very much rooted in the English aristocrat as well, was very much a part of his thinking and shaped how he thought about race as well.
1: So interesting. Such a uh, fascinating uh, reminder from, from Locke about, about Jefferson's uh, emphasis on exercise and his his tending to the body and, and also putting the experience with Sally Hemings in that broader context. So many great questions. I want to just note a question about whether Jefferson was introduced to Eastern philosophy. And it's so striking that in his correspondence with Adams, Adams is reading Joseph Priestley on the Bhagavad Gita and wants to trace back the essence of morality from Pythagoras to the Indians. And and Jefferson excitedly tells him that Priestley completed the book before he dies and says, he'll send it to him. So there, there was a deep interest in comparative religion. Before I think we'll have time for one more round. And Andrew Browning, I would love for you to put on the table the thesis of your really important and exciting new book, about the education of the founders. This is Schools for Statesmen, the Divergent Education of the Constitution's Framers. You identify three categories of Framers, the self-educated, those who were who educated at the older universities, Harvard, Yale, and William and & Mary, and those at the newer ones, including Penn and Princeton, and talk about how uh, the exposure to the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers at the newer university created a different vision of government than the kind of separation of powers emphasis that resulted at Harvard, and Yale, for the study of the classics, it's a big but important thesis. Uh, Share it with our friends. Okay, well, that that is several hundred pages
2: uh, to <laughs> to really explain and defend that. But uh, Jefferson, you know, almost falls into all three of those categories uh, at once because he he did attend one of the most traditional uh, of the American colleges, William and Mary, for two years. No one graduated from William & Mary. One went to William & Mary for a couple of years, got to meet all the other Virginia gentlemen, and, uh, and read a little bit. And in Jefferson's case, he was very fortunate that uh, William Small was there for the, the two years that he was there, because Small was an exception. Uh, he was the only layman on the faculty who was not a, an Anglican minister, and he was himself a product of the, the Scottish Enlightenment. Thomas Reed's uh, mentor, uh, was John Gregory, was also his mentor at Aberdeen, and all of these influences really do converge on Jefferson. Uh, the traditional uh, American colleges, the Harvards, Yales, Williams, and Mary's, were very traditional in their curriculum. They focused almost exclusively on the classics. Uh, If you went to Yale, uh, you would spend uh, four years reading Greek and Latin authors and Puritan theology, and uh, your your last year, you'd get a little science in there as well, but you would not read any modern history. You would not read any political philosophers, uh, period. The only political uh, instruction you would get would be the lectures of Thomas Clapp, the president of Yale, who was himself an extremely conservative individual. Uh, at the, uh, the newer schools, uh, which were led by Scotsmen, uh, William Smith, who was the, uh, the, uh, eventually president of uh, University of Pennsylvania, which was then College of Philadelphia, uh, or, uh the uh, most influential probably of all of these people, John Witherspoon, the, the president of Princeton. They were themselves Scotsmen who were educated at uh, Enlightenment colleges at, at Edinburgh, at Glasgow, or at uh, Aberdeen. And the wonderful thing about uh, Witherspoon was that he was an uh, a evangelical Presbyterian, but he taught the political philosophy of people whose theology he thought uh, was anathema. But he believed their political philosophy was pretty reasonable, so you couldn't ignore it simply because he, he disagreed with their theology. And he had students who were not all Presbyterians, uh, people like Madison or uh, some Quakers uh, who would not have been admitted to, to Harvard or Yale. And then, of course, the, the self-educated, and because of his lifetime uh, commitment to education, Jefferson really falls into that category, whose sources were really eclectic. Uh, if they could read Latin, they read the, uh, the, the classics. Benjamin Franklin couldn't read Latin until late in life. It was the last language he learned after four or five others. So he focused much more on the British Franklin was also too early for the uh, the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, people like um, Hume and Adam Smith hadn't written yet when uh, when Franklin was educating himself. So if they were exposed to the scots as as Jefferson was, uh, and he recommended more Scottish political thinkers, Keynes, Hume, Hutchison, uh, the the historian Robertson, Adam Smith later in life after he uh, had a chance to read The Theory of Moral Sentiments and Wealth of Nations, uh, they were looking at uh, a a different notion of how to govern from the the classics. They didn't depend on virtue. They understood that people, they were Presbyterians, they were Calvinists. They, They knew that virtue was not likely to be prevalent in human beings. So they looked for practical ways to balance different vices in different people in order to prevent any one small faction, any one group from imposing itself on the others. And I think we see this in in Jefferson's uh, embrace of of religious, more than tolerance, but religious freedom uh, in Virginia. The idea of not letting any one group dominate over the others, but balancing competing interests And that's very much, uh, I think, a contribution of the Scottish Enlightenment.
1: Such an important thesis. Thank you so much for sharing it. This crucial shift between those classical thinkers who focus more on virtues and the Scottish Enlightenment uh, thinkers who wanted instead to balance vices to ensure that none can prevail, Uh, so well put and uh, so well defended in your book. Thomas Kidd, uh, for, for your last intervention, sum up, if you will, for our audience, the rich threads and thesis of your new book, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. What can we learn about Jefferson's personal and spiritual life from all that he read and from his education?
3: Well, some of it we've already alluded to, just that that there are all these different competing ethical and philosophical traditions sort of ricocheting around in his brain, and that, that I think he really struggles to forge this into a coherent ethical system and and even obviously lots of people with coherent ethical systems don't live up to them but but I, I do think that, that that influences the sort of this kind of quality of Jefferson's life that he seems on several important issues not to live necessarily in accord with what he says he believes um, and uh probably the, the the major part that we haven't uh, unpacked yet is, is just his views on on religion and Christianity itself. as Professor Eisenberg said, you know he, he he's famous for this kind of cut and paste edition of, of the Gospels, uh, the so-called Jefferson Bible. it's just it's just the Gospels um, and he does two different versions of it across about 15 years. but it, it it's it's fascinating to me that he I think goes for much of his adult life, Maybe not even considering himself a Christian at all, but he is is stung by the charges in the eighteen hundred election uh, that he's he's an atheist. Uh, he's not an atheist, but but he's he's called an atheist all the time by the Federalists. Um, and and then in eighteen oh two, you have the the first uh, publication of the charges about his relationship with Sally Hemings. And I think he doesn't ever he's diligent about never addressing that publicly. But I think he's He's, he's humiliated that that this has gone public and ter- terrified about what his daughters in particular are going to think about him. Um, and, and so then he starts reading Joseph Priestley, who we've alluded to before, and he realizes that there is what he considers an intellectually responsible way to be a, an ethical but materialistic Christian. Um, and, and so that leads him to produce the first version Tragically, we don't have the text of the, of the first version of the, of the Jefferson Bible, uh, but we assume that it's, it's something like what, what the second text was, which is, is, is uh, what he did in the late 18-teens, uh, which is this uh, almost purely ethical version of, of Christianity. Um, but he doesn't ever seem to have a way of kind of applying this to his life. I, I wish that he would, would have done what Franklin did, uh, Franklin famously has his list of virtues that he would sort of, you know, check off every day. Have I been humble? You know, and, and So uh, I, I wish Jefferson would have done something like that because it, it's very hard to tell what difference he thinks that Jefferson's or, or Je- that Jesus's ethics make in his own day-to-day life. Um, but, but he sure comes to believe that they're important and that Unlike earlier when he thought that Jesus was just kind of one of the great moral teachers of antiquity, I think he does settle on the idea that Jesus was the greatest ethical teacher of antiquity uh, because of his ethic of sacrificial neighborly love.
1: So interesting and so true that he never applied these uh, virtues in his life in a consistent way. He he does have that list of 12 virtues that he sent to his Daughters, I think, about thinking twice and cooling down and so forth. But you're quite right that he didn't apply or think about it systematically. And your book so powerfully shows those contradictions in his personal and philosophical life, and is just a really important contribution that I urge all of our friends to read. Uh, Nancy Eisenberg, last word in this great discussion to you. I'll let you sum up in whatever ways you think best about what we can learn about Jefferson's uh, moral and political philosophy from his education.
4: Well, I think since we're on religion, I'm going to quote a letter that Jefferson wrote to William Short, who served as his friend. He was a, he was a friend in his private secretary during, during his years in France. And this is in 1820. He goes, among the sayings and discourses imputed to Jesus by his biographers, and notice he says biographers, <laughs> again, humanizing him. Uh, I find many passages of fine imagination, correct morality, and of the most lovely benevolence. And I think that is the key theme the benevolence. And others, again, of so much ignorance, so much absurdity, so much untruth, charlatanism, and imposture, as to pronounce it impossible that such contradictions should have proceeded from the same being. Now, I think we can accept that this is something that today's philosophers except about human today, that we are riddled with contradictions. Um, so that statement, why he is talking about the historical Jesus, who he very much saw as this valuable moral teacher, uh, but also the idea that, which I like about Jefferson, is he realizes that Everything that happens in the past is going to get retold, confused, and when he talked about twistifications of the law, the same thing exactly applies to religion, (laughs) that even these texts, and that's why I think he wants to read everything in the original, uh, to to sort of go back, and, and he kind of fits into the mold of a primitive Christian, go back to the original basic truths, unadorned by the eccentric additions that accumulate over time. This is why Jefferson is interesting, because in many ways, he also wears the hat of the historian, and he wants to kind of find the truth, and that means going to the primary sources, <laughs> not reading the secondary interpretations. Uh, but he, I think his, his relationship with religion gets more complicated, because like every person, uh, particularly when he's in retirement, and he's imagining his own death, Um, And he sees other people dying. There's that struggle of trying to figure out, well, what is there in afterlife? Is there something beyond this? And he kind of wavers back and forth. But it's natural, because this is the human condition. And this is something that Jefferson returned to again and again. And yes, does not have a coherent moral theory that he essentially subscribed to in his daily activities. And in that way, taking Jefferson off the pedestal, we have to understand that he embodies the same kind of contradictions that we as people have in our lives. Uh, When people look at us, if they even bother, (laughs) a 100 years from now. Uh, They will also note the hypocrisies, the contradictions, because that is, unfortunately, I've been reading a lot of Mark Twain recently, you know, and he talks about how the human being is the only one who knows the difference between right and wrong and tends to take the wrong choice. (laughs) And I think that's kind of where we have to understand Jefferson as well.
1: Powerfully put. A wonderful note to end on. You're so right that in addition to providing a model for emulation, uh, as the founders thought the classics could do for all of us, the founders themselves uh, hold up a mirror to our own limitations and consistencies and hypocrisies. And for that reason, they're worth studying. And you're also so right to call attention to the urgent importance of studying primary sources. That word twistifications that Jefferson used to impugn his, his uh, rival John Marshall uh, did motivate his determination to study the primary sources. And that's why friends who are watching the National Constitutional Center has put up many of the primary sources we've been describing and discussing on our new Founders Library. And you can click on the new Historic Documents Library and read Cicero's Tusculan Disputations, read Cicero's On Duties, as well as uh, the other sources that we've been discussing in this wonderful conversation. It has been a privilege to talk about Jefferson with all of you, dear friends, and please let me give the most heartfelt thanks to Andrew Browning, Thomas Kidd, and Nancy Eisenberg for a wonderful discussion. Andrew, Thomas, Nancy, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, friends, for taking time in the middle of your day to learn and grow together and look forward to seeing everyone again soon. Thank you. Bye, everyone.
0: Today's show was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Sam Desai, Melody Rowell, and me. It was engineered by Dave Stotts of the NCC's wonderful AV team. Research was provided by Emily Campbell. For a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, visit constitutioncenter.org slash debate. While you're there, check out our upcoming shows and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch the videos later in our media library at constitutioncenter.org media library. If you like the show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanae Tauber.